1: Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney along with my co host, Lisa Bramowitz.
2: Each day we bring you the most noteworthy and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor.
1: Find a Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts, as well as at Bloomberg.com.
2: Well, Amazon reported earnings after the bell yesterday, showing the first drop year over year uh, since early 2017 in their earnings. And the longer that investors have to digest this, the more investors are like, you know what? We actually kind of like Amazon more, actually a little bit lower at a discount and shares have come back uh, at one point down more than 8%, now down 2.6%. Joining us now to discuss, Alex Webb, technology columnist for Bloomberg Opinion, joining from London. So Alex, we've been talking about it all morning. Uh, Amazon shares falling. It does seem though uh, that they are stabilizing. Why do you think?
3: I mean, I think that usually when Amazon spends money, it goes somewhere which does, you know, win market share and generate returns. Um, on the one hand, we've got them spending money on on improved deliveries and in, in, you know, accelerating the pace at which Prime um, orders get delivered. And secondly, it looks as though they are taking a bit of a hit on on the margin uh, for Amazon Web Services, the hugely successful cloud operations. But the motivation for that might be about defending its market share, that by by cutting prices, they are fending off the incursions of the likes of Microsoft in particular, but also perhaps Google and Alibaba. Um, And, you know, if you're defending market share, then it's defensible to maybe sacrifice a little bit of profitability.
1: So, Alex, you know, this is a company that's kind of dialed up expenses, dialed down expenses, you know, kind of depending upon maybe either kind of what they, what they need to invest in and maybe what kind of profits they want to show the street. Are we? Do you get the sense that maybe the company is getting into a phase uh, of higher expenses?
3: I think it certainly looks as though the competitive challenges are increasing. Um, that's happening both when it comes to e-commerce and, and cloud and therefore, you know, it warrants opening the, the, the checkbook a little bit. The, you know, AWS profits are still disproportionately huge. You know, they account for two thirds of the overall profit of, of the business. Um, we are yet to see whether really the, the, the pushes from the likes of Walmart and Target um, are, can make a real incursion into this e-commerce space. I think that the stats are something like e-commerce accounts for 10% of all um, retail in the US and Amazon is about 50% of that. So, until we see any meaningful um, shift on that dial, um, then I think people can be very confident in, in, the, in Amazon's trajectory.
2: So let's talk about AWS, the cloud computing service uh, sector of Amazon. That was also a disappointment. And arguably, as you're making the argument this morning, a more significant disappointment than the increased spend. And I'm wondering why people seem to be shrugging that off.
3: I think maybe you know perhaps the arguments or the rationale for that for that slight decline are emerging. It might be I mean, look we don't really know, but we, it might be that it, as we said, it is about defending market share, and um and you know it still is the biggest player in that space by quite some some distance, and the sort of expenditure you need to to. You know, challenge in in um, essentially data centers um, is significant. Uh, you know, these chips, uh, you know, server chips from Intel cost sort of ten, twelve thousand dollars a pop, and if you've got hundreds of them, that's a huge outlay. So it's not that once you have a competitive advantage there, it is quite hard to displace. Um, nonetheless, the competitors in the space are very well capitalized and not to be trifled with, and. Um, you know, as long but as long as Amazon continues to throw off cash and be happy to reinvest it, then uh, then you know, it, it, it it's it it's by no means a sort of it's still a very healthy business.
1: So how about one of the businesses that may not be as healthy and that's the grocery business. I remember them buying something like a Whole Foods or something a year or two ago. Did they disclose much about their grocery business? Is that something that they think is gonna be some a growth driver in the future?
3: I mean, generally, the, the push from Amazon into into bricks and, and mortar is a play which I'm yet to see fully explained and, and quite how the, the margin profile of that will hold up. But, um, you know, the, the numbers they've disclosed for, from Whole Foods, um, you know, that. It does seem to have declined in the most recent quarter. I think physical stores, year on year growth, um, excluding currency effects, fell by about 1%. Now, that's not a trend that people will be happy to see. But, you know, the Amazon argument will be, well, it, it's, you don't necessarily need to be making the sales in the stores. They are a kind of perhaps a loss leader where you go out, people see it in there, and then they might go online and buy things. Nonetheless, I, I don't think it seems a terribly compelling, um, uh, you know, story to tell investors.
2: Thank you so much for being with us, Alex Webb, uh, and for all of your commentary throughout the morning. Alex Webb is a Bloomberg Opinion technology columnist. You can read all his columns, uh, as well as all the other fantastic work put out on OPIN Go on the Bloomberg Terminal or bloomberg.com/opinion. Uh, if you go to the web.
1: You know, I was just chatting with Lisa off air and I was saying, you know, we haven't we don't really talk that much about risk arbitrage and trading around deals that used to be such a a big part of the market. I feel like we don't talk about it enough, but I think we can change that a little bit right now. Yoav Sharon is a portfolio manager for Driehaus Capital Management in Chicago. He joins us on the phone. Yoav, thanks so much for joining us. Let's start with the risk arbitrage uh, part of the market. Give us a sense of, you know, how vibrant that is. What kind of returns are risk arbitrators getting these days?
4: Sure. Well, thanks for having me on, uh, you know, at a at a holistic level today. Uh annual spreads or I guess gross spreads are sitting at a, just under 4%, so we'll call it 3.6% as of quarter end. Um there's been in the middle part of this decade quite a boom in in obviously traditional merger arbitrage activity. Um in the most recent quarter that has died down um partly because of the global economic uncertainty, geopolitical tensions, etc. But what what we're seeing is still quite a bit of deal activity, um, not only in traditional merger arbitrage, which again, you know, investors can expect kind of a 4% gross return depending on when deals close. People are looking for a mid-single digits, potentially an upper single digits rate of return annualized. Um, but we're also seeing a bunch of non-traditional quote-unquote event or deal activity, which is also driving the the event-driven investing landscape.
2: How easy is it to get it right when you're dealing with this uh, w- at a time of such bifurcated results often?
4: Sure. Yeah, that's a great question. It's something that we've spent a lot of time focusing on, really the bifurcation, not only in, in risk ARB, but in, in other parts of the market as well, credit and even equity valuations, but um, has been a, a driving force of late. But specifically for risk ARB, we really have seen a bifurcation where the quote unquote safe spreads, um, just like we're seeing in, in yield, there's a, there's a flight to quality. People are trying to hide out in in these safe spreads, ones that ones that don't have either, you know, contentious litigation or regulatory overhang um, or cross border uh, concerns uh, getting tied up in in government uh, tit for tat, if you will. Uh, those spreads are really compressed and, and overly tight. And then you have this air pocket in the middle of the risk arbitrage spectrum where there aren't very many deals that live in the you know, mid to upper single digits range for a gross rate of return. So then what you're left with is a handful or a slew of deals that, again, for either regulatory purposes or uh, geopolitical purposes are sitting essentially at coin flips. So if you think about it in in an implied probability standpoint, the really safe spreads are trading in the upper 90% implied probability. The overall deal universe is still trading around 95% implied probability, which is Somewhat in line with its historical range, but there is a whole slew of deals that are sitting essentially at coin flip. so fifty percent implied probabilities again, these are deals that are either need Chinese approval uh, deals that need uh, or are being under a new FTC guideline, particularly in the healthcare space where there's a lot of concern as to what the rules of the game are. so that's that's really what's been driving this bifurcation and obviously you know you nailed it on the head getting, Getting the ones right is, is significant and obviously drives returns, but just as importantly, avoiding the blow-ups is really what's important. And obviously, you know, uh, at the beginning of 2018 with NXP and Qualcomm, there was a lot of carnage in the space. That kind of reset spreads a little wider. And now it's been a while since there's been a big blow-up, but avoiding those is, is equally, if not more important,
1: than getting the ones right. So, you have when I started on Wall Street in the mid-'80s, all the big – investment banks had big risk arb trading desk, and that was kind of the really cool place to be. Who's investing and who's playing in the risk arb market uh, these days?
4: Yeah, I mean, I think you still have dedicated funds to risk arb, uh, both in, in the liquid space and obviously in the LP space. I think what's what's evolved over time is uh, a broader spectrum, if you will, a catalyst spectrum for event-based uh, investing. So event-driven investing, anything from obviously activism gets a lot of attention, but really, you know, any sort of corporate actions, uh, recapitalizations, refinancings, pushing out maturity walls, uh, understanding uh, either seismic shifts in industries or regulatory concerns. So I, I think the, the investor base and the number of strategies that one is able to utilize is really broadened out. So it's not just, you know, the traditional merger ARB uh, levered play that was prevalent, as you referenced, in the 80s and 90s. Today, you know, we employ on our fund a a multi-strategy approach. And one of the things that really allows us uh, to take advantage of dislocations and shifts in the market is that's when that creates new opportunity for us. And we're able to, you know, in a quarter where, you know Q3 had the lowest uh, deal activity both from number and value in the last 5 years going back to Q4 of 2014 so in in a quarter like that where there's no deal activity you still have plenty of other pockets to invest along the cap, cap, catalyst spectrum, excuse me. So, so, you know, that. sorry, go ahead. No,
2: no, You, know, I wanted to get into uh, something that you said earlier, which is avoiding blowups. Mm-hmm. And um, when you think, when I think of avoiding blowups, I think of SoftBank and I think of the <laughs> uh, WeWork sure. situation and the Uber declines, et cetera. Um, what do you make of the recent IPOs that have either fizzled uh, in post IPO trading or that failed to get off the ground?
4: Yeah, you know, I think this year has been an interesting year for IPOs because it's been uh, somewhat of a hit or miss year. Um, traditionally, IPOs perform perform well. Obviously, you want to be able to tap capital markets in the future, so you try and price these appropriately and, and so that they perform well. This year has been driven by a few large IPOs. Uh, IPOs broadly are uh, there's less um, kind of the traditional uh, traditional ones that are going, but obviously the the few large ones have accounted for the bulk of the activity, which is actually something that we're seeing in Merger arbitrage as well. This year is going to end up being a, you know, again, quote unquote, a good year or a healthy year for, for merger arb uh, in terms of volumes. But it's really going to be driven by a few key deals. Um, what we're seeing is that there's less uh, breadth in the activity and in, in smaller deals. So, you know, I think uh, we watch the IPOs very closely because I think they're they're a good, um, uh, forecaster of of general capital markets exposure and in financing capabilities. Um, we participate in a lot of. Uh, financing deals uh, in particularly in the healthcare space that also is, is a good harbinger of uh, capital markets appetite and, and people's willingness to, to fund and lend. Obviously, when you have a few situations that uh, unfold that, that hurt, uh, hurt investors, there's a period of kind of licking the wounds and, and resetting of uh, not only expectations but resetting of, of risk, risk appetite. And in, in the merger arbitrage space, what you'll see there is, is kind of spreads will widen out. People will reassess. People will require a higher rate of return, which is not surprising in a, in a investment vehicle or in a, in a particular pocket of the market where, you know, again, if, if the implied probability is 95% of the time, 95% of the time you're going to be right, 5% you're going to be wrong. The math dictates that when you're wrong, it's going to hurt more than when you're right. So yeah. that's why it's so important to avoid the blow ups.
2: Yoav Sharon, thank you so much for being with us. Yoav Sharon is Portfolio Manager at Dryhouse Capital Management, uh, coming to us uh, from Chicago. Interesting to hear about not avoiding
1: the blowups. Yeah. Uh, asymmetrical returns, I think they call it, you know, when they blows up, boy, that's big.
2: Yeah, well, I think that asymmetrical returns are something that uh, some analysts over at SoftBank are uh, focusing <laughs>
1: on.
2: In this era of ultra-low interest rates, is it still good to invest in real estate? Joining us now, Melissa Reagan, head of research for Nuveen Real Estate, joining us in our Bloomberg Interactive Brokers Studios. Melissa, we've seen already such a big run-up in the prices of real estate around the nation, particularly in coastal cities. How much more upside at this point is there left?
6: I'd say a lot. Still a lot left. And by that, I say that because of the fundamentals that you see in real estate. So if you think about apartments, for example, having one of its strongest years on record from an occupancy perspective, occupancy is over ninety six percent. That's the highest since two thousand. That's nineteen years. And rents are growing three to four percent, sometimes seven to eight percent depending on the sunbelt market you're in. So the fundamentals are there to support pricing.
1: So is this still a big regional play as it relates to apartments? Again, you mentioned the sunbelt. I've kind of we've always heard that I guess. Right? Yep. So is it still a regional play?
6: It is absolutely. I mean, it depends on sort of the property type, but I would say in general, yeah, the sunbelt is really strong, right? You've got this strong in migration coming from millennials, right? They're starting to form families and they're thinking about where do I where do, where am I want to live? Where do I want to live, right? And the sunbelt offers a great quality of life, it has a deep job pool, more affordable. And this is where millennials wanna be, driving real estate.
2: So this has been a, a theme for a while. It's a talk about some of the other investments that Nuveen has been making, uh, such as cell towers, billboards, and healthcare-related I love the properties. cell tower
1: business. This is a great business. It is a
6: great business. So, tell so, us about that. Please. Absolutely. So in this, we have a healthcare technology theme uh, for real estate investing. Why? Because it's generated higher risk adjusted returns in the last decade. And we think that's true going forward, given the strong tailwinds behind Technology-driven real estate, so that can be data centers, cell towers, to some extent, billboards, depending on how you want to uh, categorize it. <laughs> no, not and
2: the ones that you <laughs> live, uh, look at when you drive down the highway. That's what we talked about. Not,
1: that's not what I'm talking. That's about. That's a great business, by the way. <laughs> Is it? Oh, Absolutely. 35 40 percent margins, growing lows, mid, mid single digits. Tons of free cash flow. I took them public back in the day. Absolutely. Oh, look at Sorry, you. Little, All right, carry okay. on. But there
6: are some electronic. I like bo- that. There are yes. some electronic Chronicle billboards, that are much more technology focused. But <laughs> <Yeah>. either way. <laughs> So, so, yeah, so what, how we see the world is that these are the sectors, the technology healthcare-driven sectors are the ones that are going to continue to generate higher risk-adjusted returns relative to just, you know, your, your traditional real estate still going to give you that solid income, but higher risk-adjusted returns. So, here's what I'm
2: thinking about as you talk. How do you avoid the blow-ups, as we were talking about earlier in the show? Because when you talk about apartments… Sure, the Sunbelt might be doing all right, mm-hmm. but there are certainly cities that aren't. When you talk about healthcare properties, you can think about hospital chains uh, that have been overbuilt and overbedded and need to get you know cut down and are need to have
6: their debt restructured. Mm-hmm. So where are the potholes here that you're avoiding? Absolutely. So that's a great point when you talk about healthcare and you think about something like skilled nursing, right? And so that that is where you've seen a lot of operators in that space struggle with their margins, not be able to turn a profit, that has been a huge struggle area for healthcare real estate. But when I think about healthcare real estate, we look at it from a life science perspective, which is driven a lot by biotech VC funding, which is not going anywhere, drugs, right? The tenants in that space, they make drugs. That's not going anywhere. And then we also look at it from a medical office perspective, where you're not, it's not a direct play on the hospital. You're not buying the hospital. You're buying the medical office that may be campus adjacent or even off campus, but is strong demand, right? From baby boomers aging, needing new hips, new knees. That's how we think about avoiding the potholes. But yes, there are many of them. Those are the sectors we really like.
1: Do you avoid markets that maybe overheated such as kind of the coastal areas like you know again the northeast the, the, the west coast are those too highly priced that you can't generate the returns you like
6: absolutely so what we've done is we have built a relative value model for every uh metro and by property type and so what that says to us is all right you have to put in what is your initial yield going into these markets and to your point if it's really low you're not going to get no matter how good the fundamentals are you're just not going to get the growth even if the growth is very strong. And so we've built these models so we can tell you on the fly this market's a better value because you get the growth but the initial yield is higher. And so we're trying to we're doing that on the fly and dynamically so we know kind of any given day, quarter, month where to place the capital.
2: Is there one city you absolutely would not buy in?
6: Great question. Really hard to answer, right? Because if you think about how how real estate works, right? Location, location, location. And so there are ma- macro plays, certainly cities we would want to... Not put as much capital into, but real estate—you have to remember—at the end of the day, is very much micro location, location, location. So that's a hard—you can't, you couldn't just blackline
1: an entire city. But if you could, <laughs> <laughs> would would you, would you invest in the Dream Mall in you know, the Swamps of Jersey? Probably not. So
6: listen, so so it's a great, it's a great, it's a great point, right? And when you think about our thirty-five tomorrow cities, which you could go online and look at. Cities that are not on there, St. Louis is not on there, Detroit's not on there, really tiny cities, Birmingham's not on there. Why? These are places that are losing population. I wouldn't say, just not great, robust demographic fundamentals.
2: Melissa Reagan, you'll have to come back and elaborate. Uh, Head of research for Nuveen Real Estate. Thank you for being with us.
1: Well, we're just starting to get some earnings from the technology companies. We had some disappointing uh, numbers as some of the semiconductor names earlier in the week. We had Amazon last night. Disappointing numbers. That stock was down as much as 7 or 8%. It's only down 1.3% here as the market rallies. To get a sense of kind of what we should be looking forward to as it relates to tech earnings, we welcome David Garrity, chief market strategist for Laidlaw & Company. He's also a partner at BT Block joining us live here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. So, David, let's just start with Amazon. Last night, kind of a they obviously missed on earnings. Earnings, the guidance on the profitability side, again a little bit light. I kind of, I guess, raising concerns for some investors. Like. Oh, here we go again, back into investment spend. Um, what do you make out of the Amazon numbers last night? Well, I
7: think in terms of what we're seeing, um, you know, not bad numbers. If we look in terms of some of the high growth areas for the company, i.e., around cloud computing, Amazon Web Services, you know, numbers there were up fairly solid, thirty-five percent a year-over-year. Year. People who are inclined to pick nits might say, "Well, that was a deceleration from the year-over-year year growth of thirty-seven percent the quarter before." But thirty-five or thirty-seven, you still got a fairly robust number, especially against a backdrop where we're looking at about 20% of the U.S. economy being in recession. Um, relative to their forward guidance, I mean, Amazon has always sandbagged the numbers. And, and certainly things are set up right now going into the fourth quarter where the U.S. consumer looks to be relatively okay where in, um, unemployment levels are. So, you know, I think broader numbers are for 4% industry-wide retail increase in, in the fourth quarter, but obviously Amazon's going to do a multiple of that just given how, how much they've strengthened themselves and given their investments in the quarter to strengthen their prime offering to deliver goods within one day, and also the fact that they staffed up here ahead of the holiday quarter.
2: Let's talk about the clouds, in particular cloud computing with respect to AWS, because that was a big disappointment as well. And it's amazing how significant a proportion of the profits of Amazon come from AWS, really. So what happened there?
7: in terms of AWS you certainly are seeing greater competition coming in from Microsoft Azure service. Now one might argue how these companies put their numbers together as they report them. In terms of look at AWS the revenue number was 9 billion. If you look at Microsoft's you know cloud computing numbers they're saying they're doing 11.2 billion, which would make them look larger. But even if you disaggregated the Microsoft numbers just focused on Azure alone, Azure's growth rate in the third quarter was 65% year over year, which arguably is well ahead of 35%. So it looks as if Amazon is developing competition. Also in terms of looking at cloud computing, while we don't have the numbers now, we will have them from Google after the close on Monday as to how they've been doing in terms of their own cloud offering. So clearly not necessarily AWS, Amazon Web Services game right now. They may still be the market leader, but they have others who are intent on catching up.
1: Earlier this week, we had uh, Facebook CEO Mark Zuckerberg uh, appear before Congress uh, for most of the day, a kind of a, quite a grilling. I wonder what you thought about, A, his performance, and B, does this signal that big U.S. tech is really under a new microscope by the U.S. regulators?
7: Well, it may not necessarily be tech widely, but it certainly is Facebook specifically. Um, I mean, and one might argue that the speech that Zuckerberg had given prior to the Capitol Hill testimony, the speech he gave at Georgetown University, where he was trying to say that Facebook, and in terms of what's being advertised on it, should be protected by the First Amendment rights. But the fact of the matter is, if we deal with other media organizations such as this, there are standards that have to be observed in terms of the truthfulness from a factual standpoint of the content that's being represented. And to the extent that Zuckerberg refuses to draw a line on making sure that either A, there's factual truth in the political advertising that's being put onto its platform, or B, just decides to step away from all political advertising entirely, because it's not really a very large part of their business. So why sacrifice their integrity to do it? You know, Mark Zuckerberg refuses to step away from a position that has people saying that Facebook really is disinformation for profit. As a business model.
2: Did you know that facts, we were supposed to be doing facts all this time?
1: That's what I understand.
2: (laughs) Wow, you don't say. All right, look, I want to shift gears a little bit and talk about Twitter because uh, Twitter share is still down today after yesterday's nearly 21% decline. And I'm just wondering uh, how bad you thought the results were given the fact that they're proving that they can actually increase their user base, which had been a question for a while.
7: Right. Well, there's still going to be a greater risk going into the forward 12 months around the 2020 election cycle that, you know, these users may very well be bots. So I think that there's still some skepticism that could be applied. So
2: you're not buying it. You don't think that they actually have increased their user base that much.
7: Um, it's entirely possible that they may not. And, and the what other-
2: evidence are you basing that on?
7: Well, I mean, just in terms of how they've gone through and had to purge their user base in the past and that we're going into a point from a political cycle where you're going to see um, efforts ramped up. I mean, not to say that it's a a Twitter issue, but, you know, Facebook themselves came out and said, oh, we've just, you know, shut down four campaigns on our
2: platform. doesn't Twitter do this in real time? I mean, they don't wait until like one big sweet moment, do they?
7: Uh, I mean, it it remains to be seen. I would say that the problems that you've got with Facebook, I mean, Twitter is basically basically Facebook writ small. I mean, so I would say that, you know, tech as a whole is not going to be subject necessarily to scrutiny, although arguably one might say that it's going to. But I would say that the tip of the iceberg here really has to do with the social media companies. And granted, Facebook this year has been, you know, a phenomenal stock. I think it's been up 35, 37 percent. Not a bad return, uh, but still, you know, a company that arguably going forward faces greater headwinds than not. The same would apply relative to Twitter. Do
1: you think these social media companies will be more regulated by the U.S.? Well, I I think that they
7: need to meet the standards that other more traditional media and news organizations uh, have to meet. So from that standpoint, time time to get them out of the sandbox and put them into the pool with everybody else.
2: David Garrity, thank you so much, as always, for being with us uh, and giving us your thoughts. Interesting to hear about the idea of whether the user base really has increased all that much, uh, raising that issue ahead of the U.S. election. David Garrity, chief market strategist for Laidlaw & Co., and also a partner at BT Block, joining us here in our interactive broker studios.